Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. And today I'm excited to say we're kicking off another month's theme. This month's theme is authorship and ownership. Uh, If you listen to the intro episode, you know that. Um, But today we have an awesome guest with us. His name is Kevin McCoy. And Kevin has an impressive resume in the arts as an artist, an academic, a professor at NYU, uh, a co-founder of an art technology company, Monograph, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, But Kevin has really spent much of his career kind of in the vanguard of artists advocating for and experimenting with all things new. He likes new things. Um, Much of that obviously involves technology. And so all of this stuff gives him an awesome, unique perspective on uh, how the idea of authorship and ownership is changing kind of in the modern art world. So, Kevin, thank you so much for being with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. And of course, in a Murphy's Law way, as soon as we started connecting, my uh, you know connection started you know, getting poor. So <laughs> I'll move around and find uh, you know. Uh, you know, find find a better connection, but um, we'll get past all that. And I'm really excited to be, uh, to be here talking with you. <laughs> yeah, one of the uh, one of the perils of doing coast to coast interviews. It's a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, look, before we jump into kind of the meat and potatoes, um, I'd love if you could kind of give uh, our listeners a little bit of your background and kind of how you got started in the arts and specifically kind of in the digital and media arts. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've been working in a kind of art and technology uh, way for a long time, and that's been, you know, my primary form of uh, of, of artistic production. I um, mean, I should say right off the bat that uh, my whole professional practice has been a collaborative one with my wife Jennifer, and so Jennifer and Kevin McCoy is the the entity that is um, behind all of the artistic efforts uh, that we've done. And so you might hear me go, you know, between. Uh, I and we pronoun uh, interchangeably, but uh, that's that that's what I'm referring to. Um, and so, uh, you know, the work that we've done has been really pretty multifaceted, um, dealing with um, you know, video and installation art and uh, code-driven projects, online uh, projects, uh, as well as more traditional forms like sculpture. Um, you know, both she and I are, are, are academics. We teach in art departments. I'm, uh, I run the digital practices uh, program in the art department at NYU, uh, and she runs the graduate program at Brooklyn College. Um, so we've done a lot of stuff. Um, uh, in, in the art world. Um, and I should say that we, you know, with our background uh, coming out of media arts in the early 90s, I honestly didn't expect much of a uh, take up from the art world, uh, you know, the kind of like New York based art world or the, you know, museum based art world. I just thought that my interests were pretty marginal. Uh, and so it's been, you know, gratifying and it's certainly interesting to see that art world evolve and change and embrace um, technological forms uh, over, you know, over the last couple of decades. You know, there's certainly not any kind of like parody of, you know, painting, sculpture and, and, and new media, but yeah. uh, there's there's certainly a lot of interest and in, 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 in engagement with um, with technology all across the board, which is pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Well, I'm curious, man, what were the, you know, uh, you're you're just a couple years older than me, but, you know, you do have your roots kind of in the 90s uh, tech art scene. Uh, what was what was that like coming up before, you know, we had all the tools that artists have at their disposal today? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great, that's a great question. And, um, you know, there's, you, you can get it, you can put a kind of hazy gauze on, on that time to a certain extent, you know, and, and there was something pretty um you know, pretty wonderful about that because things were so undefined, you know, before desktop 
where you know before the internet, before the mobile phone, all those all those things. The you know my earliest memories um, of that was just kind of rampant hybridity between between forms and people really excited about crashing all kinds of things together you know and so you know from the you know kind of a bay area perspective you know the original mondo 2000 and first couple of years of wired magazine mm-hmm. uh, kind of mindset uh was pretty great you know pretty utopian and pretty uh pretty excited um and uh you know so i certainly remember those times we moved uh to new york we've been in new york for a long time new yorkers now at this point um, but we moved here in the in the mid 90s after grad school and um for us it was uh embracing the the kind of emerging world of net art and internet-based art uh, and we were collaborating and working closely with this um kind of pioneering uh online space called the thing thing.net um and uh, which is kind of like well you know in, in in the bay area but a little bit different kind mm. of focus um and uh, uh and that was just a great Hub both on and in real life um, for so that's a big uh, a big focus and then um, Rhizome uh, you know the art and technology Rhizome got started at the same time and we were closely involved with those people and then iBeam uh, got started um, in kind of the whole time. Um, uh, art uh, uh, centers and or organizations in, in New York with a lot of our people, uh, and it was really good. And then you know we've worked for a long time uh, in the you know with a commercial gallery, uh, Postmasters, um, and they're you know just a great a great community, great people, and and have been you know on that kind of cutting edge of art and technology and all and and, and other things for uh, for a long time. Um, so we've had you know good good people, good good you know good stuff happening um, all along. It's been pretty gratifying. It seems like you very clearly have had a relationship both um, with technology and art, and it's probably a little bit inseparable to you in your practice. But is there something that kind of led you in your in your young life? Did, did the, the technology side lead you into creativity or vice versa? How did that work for you? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, and it, it it was it was a little bit of both, but I you know I I, I grew up outside of Seattle, uh, kind of in the countryside, and uh, you know was not there was no great uh, resources of art or technology uh, in my uh, in my upbringing, <laughs> right. um, <laughs> uh, and so it was more about you know soccer and 4-H, <laughs> <was like> my, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then Dungeons and Dragons, of course. Of course, so, uh, you know. So, yeah, so Devo and Dungeons and Dragons, you know, was my entree to the other <laughs> side. <laughs> Very nice. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, so, um, you know, the computing played a big, a big part of it, you know, and so, you know, the family, Apple II, and, you know, kind of learning basic and figuring out kind of, you know, rudimentary games programming and stuff was all part of, you know, my activities with, between my friends and I, you know, we were really into that. Um, but then I really took a step away from that and college was not interested in those things and was pretty uh, low tech and was interested and got interested in philosophy and then interested in filmmaking and, um, you know, other, other kinds of things. And so it, um, it, it, it kind of started to merge back together again, even after, um, uh, after my undergrad degree, my wife and I met in Paris in grad school where I was doing a film studies program and she was also doing that program. And, and that 
experience, this is in 89 and 90, Mm. uh, was super pivotal because just of the artwork that I was exposed to there. I'd never lived in a big city. uh, And so Paris was my first big city experience. And so, you know, the Pompidou Center and, uh, you know, the, the kind of gallery scene that was happening there. And so that's where I first saw uh, experimental film, kind of classic experimental film, European and American, you know, Cam Brackage and, you know, yeah. on, on and on. I first saw Nam June Pike and Gary Hill and Bill Viola and these kind of Japanese um, diarist works and Chris Marker, on and on and on, all this work that was just this huge uh, revelation. And so uh, for me, and so um, coming off of that, that's when I thought that, I, you know, it would made sense to put the studies component aside and to engage directly with media uh, and go to art school. And so um, that, uh, you know, you know, in the early 90s, experimental film was, you know, kind of still chugging along in a way, but we fell into this brand new uh you know, concept of a, of an art school uh, based at uh, Rensselaer Polytech, uh, upstate New York, that was combining um, video and computer music and uh, and and um, computer graphics, you know, all together, you know, which was such a unheard of uh, concept uh, at the time. Um, and so this was the um, the I-Ear program. Uh, uh, integrated electronic arts uh, was the the moniker of it, um, mm. and that was just really, really amazing, really productive. And it was a really, as, as I said earlier, a really undefined time uh, in terms of what the forms were, what the tools were. You know, you really were inventing things. And so for me, I liked the. Um, I've always been into systems uh, and kind of systems-based processes and thinking about uh, a, a kind of systems or a cybernetic uh, uh, kind of mindset and and, and, um, and way of working. Um, sure. And so just the kind of interconnections and malleability of, uh, of, of the signal uh, and information was, was really um, interesting to me. Um, and so the, at that time, the, the, the most of the, you know, my, my primary, um, teachers were all uh, musicians. Uh, and hmm. so specific, specifically, I worked with really closely with uh, Pauline Oliveros, who was just, you know, such a uh, important figure I mean, for, for a lot of people, obviously, but to, but to um, my, my wife and I in, uh, in particular, um, and just her mindset, her way of looking, her way of listening, you know, the deep listening approach uh, yeah. was, was, was really where it's at. And she's got, of course, got deep roots uh, in the Bay Area with Mills and the San Francisco Tape Center and, uh, you know, things like that from another era. Um, but so, you know, and I also appreciated her bi-coastal, you know, kind of approach. <laughs> approach right? So, yeah, totally. And, and way of living and everything. So, so, so that was really good. Um, and so just that kind of, um, you know, experimentalism, uh, you know, an openness to technology uh, was really good. And it certainly didn't hurt to, you know, have a foothold in, you know, these crazy tools that no one knew about called Photoshop or, you know, After Effects, you know, COSA right. After Effects uh, at that time uh, was uh, w- was really helpful. And then we had a really interesting, um, we went back to Seattle for a little while after grad school, just for for reasons, whatever, and then fell into a kind of, um, you know, dot-com moment uh, with a, <laughs> a Microsoft spinoff there uh, where we ended up just, it was, you know, kind of, um, kind of crazy. We're, you know, this, this company called Starwave, and we ended up working with uh, Peter Gabriel on a CD-ROM <laughs> project, this follow-up <laughs> CD-ROM to Explora uh, called Eve that was um, just 
pretty amazing you know yeah i mean it was it was definitely a tale of two cities you know the best of times and the worst of times sure uh you know but <laughs> focusing on the best of times part it was pretty it was pretty awesome um and uh uh, and, and that was where we, um, that was where I really was diving into, um, code-based, uh, art, you know, co- making code-based interactive projects, working uh, with director at the time and lingo and making these kind of interactive animations as a kind of storyboard conceptual artist that was hmm. you know, then, then handed off to the actual coder, you know, kind of making all this stuff in C, but that, that, um, kind of iterative code and image and sound based, uh, way of working, that we were developing there um, in the, you know, kind of 95, 96 was really uh, formative for us, for sure. Uh, and we, we took a lot of the techniques and thoughts and things we had developed uh, from there and, and definitely applied it to our work um, in, the, in, the, in the latter part of the 90s. Yeah. I, and I'm curious, I mean, even extending that kind of out of the artistic practice into the, the educational practice, I mean, what has it been like? Uh, how long have you been at NYU? I've been at NYU since 2004, and before that, I was at the City College of New York, uh, which I started in '96. Uh, so I've been a yeah. full-time professor for uh, a long time, 23 years. <laughs> so I'm curious <laughs> yeah, what so. like the particular challenges are of of teaching, trying to teach something that you know by its very nature is kind of on the bleeding edge. How has that translated from yeah. like the discovery as an artist into the discovery as a teacher? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to generalize across that period of time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and certainly the, you know, the tools have, have changed all the things. It's funny. I mean, you, you can look at it in a couple of different ways and in, and in some respects, you'd be amazed how things haven't changed. People still, you know, learn the Adobe suite, you know, and that's still yeah. a backbone <laughs> of, of how things work, you know? Um, and it's still important to, you know, have a code, you know, kind of understanding of code, you know, and I'm, you know, certainly one of the, you know, you know, one of the believers in, you know, learning multiple human languages and multiple machine languages. Mm. and think that's important. And, um, and, and obviously the code tools have changed drastically from lingo and direct macromedia director, um, you know, through flash and processing and now HTML five and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the challenges of coaxing and cajoling and figuring out how to get artists uh, into uh, a coding mindset and to, and to learn coding-based skills and making that relevant uh, is, is largely the same um, as it was then. You know, it's still the same kind of set of, the set, the same set of issues. And, and I think that it's important to not see that as like a one-way street, like you're kind of dragging the dog on the leash towards, you know, you know, from the art side to the code side, but it's also the technical tools being relevant to the ways of working that um, make sense to artists, you know, so I think that there's, you know, a kind of, um, you know, direction from both sides, that's important or movement from both sides, that's important. Um, And that certainly happened. I mean, and now, you know, we're in kind of a golden age of, of artist centric um, uh, tools, uh, and, you know, tools made by and for um, artists, uh, uh, you know, uh, ha- has been going strong for, you know, a good 10 years now at this point, at least. Yeah. Um, so, so it's pretty good. And, and, you know, and all those things, I mean, of course it's like, things are, are, are vastly better, right? The internet is better. The microcontrollers are better. The sensors sure. are better. <laughs> you know, the program coding languages are better. The resources for learning are all better. So it's definitely vastly improved from, yeah. you know, kind of these earlier times. 
It's always interesting, though, the relationship between an artist and their tools, right? I mean, some some artists really like the struggle of working with with difficult tools because sometimes that gives you uh, interesting constraints that you have to work through, right? For sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, and I think that so many art um, problems are, are formal problems, you know, especially now because there's such malleability of techniques and ways of working that uh, figuring out what you want to do is so often a form problem of what's the best shape for this idea to take, um, what's the best way to deliver this idea. Hmm. Um, and that gets, and that gets all tied up to how is it that I want to work, you know, as an artist, what do I want to be spending my time doing? Yeah. Um, and, and this is where, and this is where, you know, code-based processes suffer because, you know, you're so often, um, when, when you're working in an explicitly code-based way, um, you know, and it's some sort of real time or it's generative or it's interactive or something like that. Um, you know, you have an idea in mind and it's just, you know, there's a goal you're trying to get to. And it's so often it's, you know, 90% of the time, it's just coaxing the system and the machine to get to where, you know, you already want to be. Hmm. And so there's this moment of like at the end after, you know, hours or days or however long that, you know, kind of pit of despair and is of trying to make it all work of like, okay, great. The machine did what I wanted it to do. Right. And so, you know, and so that in and of itself is not so exciting a space to be in artistically. Whereas you're, if you're working in traditional mediums, you're, you know, the colors are already are always mixing. The image is mm. always kind of coming in and out of in and out of focus, you know, on the canvas or on the print press or or, or whatever. And so there's a lot more um, it's a lot more iterative in a, in a in, in kind of an interesting way. And so often that code process is just sort of like, a, you know, nothing, 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 nothing. OK, now it works. Yeah. Um, and that's a very that, and that's a pretty different dynamic. Yep. Yeah, as a professional programmer, I know that all too well. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't great. it doesn't change even if that's your full time job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like great. The machine's doing what I wanted it to do last week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, cool. Well, yeah, I'd like to kind of to jump to the the meat and potatoes, and uh, you know, as I kind of teased in the intro, um, you co founded Monograph back in 2014 with. Uh, two additional co-founders, if I understand that correctly. Um, and Monograph is self-described online as a public pra- public platform allowing anyone to register creative works on the Bitcoin blockchain, along with ways to trade, buy, and sell those works. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about um, what Monograph is and sort of what your vision was in 2014? Yeah, sure, definitely. Um, and so it started, um, you know, there's a, a kind of a prehistory to it, um, you know, that's pretty interesting. And I, you know, kind of fell into the blockchain rat hole, uh, rabbit hole uh, in uh, 2012 um, and, you know, got, you know, really kind of interested in 2013 was really, you know, just deep into the, you know, insanity of uh, 2013 Bitcoin. Um, but then, you know, kind of emerged from that thinking about um, other applications for it. And I had done some experiments uh, in the studio, um, you know, with early, early Ripple when you could make your own token and made a, an ART token and thought about how to, um, it was looking at experiments that people were doing uh, at that time uh, and kind of thinking about how those could be analogs to something that's more art specific. So for example, um, in 2013, there was this guy down in Florida that used the you know early stage of 
Ripple to make this token called DYM Dime. And uh, he mm. said that if you mail me, if you mail me, here's my, this is all in Bitcoin talk form, mail me, um, sil- you know, whatever it is, pre pre 1963 silver dimes or whatever, you know, whatever that year is, <laughs> the, the dimes used to be made made out of silver. Right. Um, right. Mail me one of those and I'll send you one of my dime tokens. And when you ever want to get a dime back, send me a dime token to my address and I'll e- I'll mail your your silver dime back to you. And I just thought that was just so great and absurd, you know, and I got a couple of these dimes and I mailed it to him and he got me the token. And then you could go to these different exchanges and kind of trade them around. And there was a, you know, kind of this market. I thought that was really pretty amazing. Uh, And so I made this ART token um, uh, that was attached to um, a hundred different black and white photographs that I had made you know, kind of back in the day, 10 years earlier as part of my MFA uh, work and thought, okay, we'll do this kind of thing. Um, it never really got any particular traction. Um, and and then changes in the Ripple blockchain kind of made all that sort of go away. But that was kind of one early experiment. And then the other relevant one was um, in uh, early 2014, um, this uh, company, uh, this, this group of guys out of Princeton um, called OneName, um, made a system, kind of an identity-based system, uh, and they were using um, uh, Namecoin. Um, and so they published this little spec, and, and I didn't know anything about those those fundamental uh, computer science concepts, and you know that I just didn't know anything about, even though I had you know done enough coding at the time. But I, you know, it's pretty ad hoc, and lots of gaps in my my knowledge. Um, sure. So seeing how these guys laid out a kind of spec. Uh, for 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 naming naming conventions and how they use the Namecoin blockchain as a way to encode that information, I was like, oh, that's exactly how I could do provenance for digital artworks. And so in my mind, I kind of in that early 2014 and kind of you know looking at those two examples and kind of uh, of, of dime on Ripple and then uh, one you know um, one name on on Namecoin, um, seeing what they seeing what they do, and I thought, okay, that's how I can kind of whip together a version of provenance for digital artworks and make digital artworks uh, tradable. And so I was kind of penciled that out in early 2014. And then um, a curator at the at Rhizome and at the New Museum uh, approached me, a guy that I've known for a long time, and said, oh, we have, you know, we're doing uh, Seven on Seven, which is this annual conference where they pair an artist with a technologist uh, and give them 24 hours to kind of work together and put something together and then make a public presentation uh, around their ideas. And that was in May of uh, 2014. And so I was hooked up with uh, Anil Dash and, um, you know, who's a great guy. I've been around, you know, kind of the blogging space for a long time and, mm. um, uh, and now, uh, now is the CEO of Glitch. Um, and uh, he, so we, they put us together and <clears throat> he goes, Hey, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to make a, um, did a provenance system uh, on for digital art on blockchain, and here's how we can do it. And he went, okay, great. And so he knew how to work with. Uh, he knew PHP. I didn't know PHP. And so it's like, <laughs> oh, I can do PHP, and 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 it's like, oh, and so it's like, okay, I need to I need to connect to Twitter. So he goes, okay, I can do the Twitter API, and, and then I got all the blockchain stuff figured out. Here's how we do it. So we we made a version of. And so that was that was you know 24 hours later that was monograph. Um, and uh, and and we had working code that you could upload an image, it would hash it. Um, you get this kind of code block. There's no wallet integration. It was pretty primitive uh, at the time. But that started the thing. And and and, and our onstage uh, examples were the first um, uh, blockchain uh, of tokenization of of digital art. And it was these GIF images that I had made. Um, and we, you know, I registered them using our system, and then we traded them, and 
you know, he bought him off me for five bucks and I transferred him to him and, and we, and, and it was the first time it was there. And, and, and surprisingly it got a lot of interest. People were really galvanized a lot of attention, you know, I mean, blockchain seems to have an ability to do that. And, um, and so right away people were reaching out to us. And so within a couple of days I was presenting at TechCrunch in New York, you know, to a very different audience than the new museum audience where we had been before. Um, and, and, you know, and kind of press and people were, were kind of rolling in uh, asking about it. And so that was the start of it. And so um, he was not in a position to continue it, but he said, you know, good luck and let me know what you do and whatever. Um, and so um, then the new museum was starting a incubator uh, called New Inc. Um, and they said, well, you're, this is the perfect project to be in our kind of inaugural incubator class. Uh, why don't you come and see what you can do with this project? And so uh, so that's what happened. And so then that um, that fall period, fall of, of uh, 2014, into 15 was building the kind of founding team. So my 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 technical partner and my kind of financial uh, partner, um, uh, you know, kind of putting those things together and then trying to figure out how we would actually engineer the platform. And, hmm. and that all took a little longer than I thought, but um, but <laughs> always does. <laughs> and so you know, it's like this is interesting, you know, because it's like you know, I'm a longtime artist, a longtime academic. I know how to put an art project together, and I know how to develop an idea in an academic context and so this was an idea that you know this was an opportunity to say okay well let's what happens in a startup context what happens in a business context Mm. um and so it was an experiment you know in creative business making should say you know of course that (laughs) shocker that that may not end so well but uh (laughs) many have tried and many have failed yeah exactly um but the tool you know that we launched i'm really proud of it and and, and, you know it's really it's you know put put a lot of kind of time and effort and money into it um to make something that could uh be you know that would have uh that would be open that would allow people to um use you know blockchain you know if they were interested in doing so and provide a mechanism for trading buying selling whatever um you know was the was the initial idea and to have it be um, artist driven, um, you know, or user driven, right. Direct, you know, kind of direct, direct drive, um, was, was important. Um, and I, and and we did those things and, and, and it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, there was a lot of lessons learned along the way. And and on one thing is like, that is that, that, you know, doesn't actually solve a lot of problems for people as it turns out providing those things. Um, but that was the original vision. Well, so uh, for for listeners who may not be sort of uh, is is in the know in in how kind of the art world works and how value is assigned to art, can you explain a little bit about what provenance or provenance is and um, sort of why it works in the traditional art world, but not so well for sort of digital art? Sure, sure. Yeah. So provenance is a pretty um, important concept and kind of a backbone concept in, uh, in, in the art world. Um, and that is really just the history of ownership of a, of an object, um, from one person to the next. And traditionally in the, you know, in the fine art world, um, this is an issue when works come up for sale, uh, through auction houses. Um, and that the, the, um, and, and there's a two-part process to provenance. There's also authentication that goes along with it saying that this is a, this is a genuine work by the artist. Mm. Uh, and these are the, um, owners who have owned this work, um, you know, kind of a chain of title, 
um, you know, kind of ownership over the years. And so that authentication and, and, and ownership history is kind of wrapped up together inside that term of, uh, of provenance. Typically, in an art historical context, um, the the um, authentication of the works is done through um, uh, if, if it's if it's like you know a long dead artist you know from hundreds of years ago, then it's done by art histo- art history academics in conjunction with um, you know the toniest of museums. Uh, you know their specialists will get together and they'll make a uh, a book called a catalog raisonné that lists every single official artwork by that artist. Um, if it's you know, a contemporary artist, say in the last hundred years or so, then it's some combination of the artist representatives from the artist's estate uh, together with um, art historians and um, museum, uh, museum professionals. So it's a very professionalized practice. It's a very sophisticated practice. Uh, it's easy to uh, you know, kind of, you know, the media likes to make fun of art history majors you know, and the uselessness <laughs> of art history majors, but this is classic art history um, work is uh, figuring out catalog raisonnés and what the you know and what the provenance of uh, of, of works are, uh, and so that is a that that's a underpinning you know major underpinning major backbone of the uh, of the art market um, and what is in collections and how things are auctioned and the auction prices and you know things like that. That's all uh, super important uh, information for. Um, setting prices and, and establishing market value for um, for works. And so there, and, and there's tons of examples of just of, of just weird edge cases with um, with with works that are, you know, you know, becoming authenticated or losing authentication or, you know, uh, uh, kind of questionable works, counterfeit, you know, all these kinds of things. This is this process is meant to provide some kind of resolution to those um to those questions, you know, it's not a court of law because a court of law can't <clears throat> decide that. Um, and so it's the artist's estate and it's the kind of consensus of the marketplace that decides what the what those works are. And so, right. you know, the Salvador, the Salvador Mundi painting, you know, this kind of new Leonardo one that just came up, you know, it's pretty, um, that was uh, controversial, you know, is, is that a actual Leonardo painting? Um, there's all kinds of issues around the con- conservation of that work. Um, and, and the kind of recreation of it by conservators, you know, there's some controversies there as well too. But you know, just the 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 call that was made for that to be um, added to the catalog raisonné of, of Leonardo, um, you know, Da Vinci was uh, it was important. And there's all kinds of issues. You know, uh, Warhol Foundations had all kinds of things, and you know, every every major artist has some kind of issues around authentication. So um, in, in in monograph, you know. For, for what I was doing, um, you know, it, the, the, the concept was somewhat simple. So it's like, okay, uh, digital artworks, specifically digital artworks, are infinitely reproducible without without loss. You know, you just duplicate them, and then you've got another copy. So um, the the thought that I had in the kind of core of the system, from a kind of system standpoint, uh, was you would make a public uh, attestation of authorship. Um, on a on a, in, in a way that is publicly verifiable and, and, and you know trustworthy, or people could des- decide for themselves about the trustworthy of that t- trustworthiness of that statement. Uh, some sort of way to verify the integrity of the file, and some sort of way to store that information in a um, permanent way. So the, the the permanency and transferability component is what the blockchain. Um, provides hmm. um, the 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 linkage of the file the authentication and, and the integrity of the file uh, is done through hashing um, you know which is certainly a standard way that you check some uh, check some files you know for 
you know, file downloads or, or, or whatever, right. you know, MD5, checksum, right? It's a standard thing. I, I learned that concept later. That was one of the key concepts. I was like, oh, <laughs> right. wow. Oh, that's a cool, that's a great tool. Yep, <laughs> you yep, know, yep. Like, light bulb goes on. Um, and, then, and, then, and then initially, at least, it was Twitter, you know? So it's like, okay, if you believe that this is my Twitter account and I kind of make this statement that this is my artwork and that I'm registering it and here's the hash, then we put all that information on, and we use Namecoin at the time because, well, we only had 24 hours and, and Namecoin <laughs> gave us gave us 512 bytes per uh, per entry that we could cram all this this stuff into. Right. Um, that was the model, and then you could, and then once that was on, that was a, once that was um, on chain, you could then transfer it, and that was, you know, pretty pretty straightforward. And so just kind of putting all those pieces together, um, you know, was no one had done that before, uh, and so we, you know, were the first ones to the first ones to do that. Um, and then, and the system that exists today is really has all those elements. Uh, at its core, I mean, we don't use um, Twitter uh, anymore, uh, and you kind of make your own, um, make your own account, uh, you know, with your own, um, your own, your, your own um, information there on our platform. But um, but the other elements are, are the same. Um, so and 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 the other platforms, you know, now now there's uh, the idea has um, caught on and much more than you know the kind of head scratching days of 2014 when no one knew what we were talking about. <laughs> right. Um, but 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 everybody does it this way. This is this is more or less how it's done. Yeah. Um, you know, so um, that's interesting. So so how you know, I mean. So so monograph and and all of these sort of blockchain based uh, schemas um, basically give these digital artifacts um, something that looks a lot more like traditional documentation around uh and artwork and its history, but presumably before uh, before these sort of blockchain solutions, people were still buying digital art, right? So, um, yes, what was happening kind of up to that point that that uh, maybe was a problem or maybe wasn't a problem? I mean, how, how are people doing this? In other words, if something is easily reproducible and downloadable and all that stuff, um, why would a collector or customer ever spend money for something that's fairly easy to reproduce? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so within within the the art world, you know, in that in that kind of traditional art market and art circuit of museums and galleries and auction houses and collectors, um, within that world, um, people had been buying work that was reproducible um, for for a long time. I mean, you know, and you could argue that film photography is reproducible and analog video is reproducible. Um, but even, you know, even in the 90s and 2000s, when things, were, you know, were becoming digital, um, you know, people were buying stuff that was natively digital uh, in form. Um, and so, uh, you know, that might be video works, but the works were, you know, delivered on a hard drive and they're QuickTime files, you know, um, or the, or the, the or, or it's an image file or it's a, you know, PDF. And, and, and there's plenty of examples of artists, um, you know, operating in that, uh, you know, kind of traditional um, art world that, you know, we're doing native digital deliveries. And mm. so in, in, in that sense, it's, there was no problem to solve. Um, that system worked and it was just kind of grafted onto the traditional system, which is uh, very much about personal relationships. So, um, and, and these are some points to, mm. you know, to, to kind of realize that the market is small, the number of buyers is small, um, the number of artists that have, you know, kind of crossed some sort of invisible threshold to be, um, you know, 
shown in the galleries or shown in museums and be, you know, something that a collector, uh, you know, the small number of collectors is actually interested in. Um, that's not a big, that's not a big number. Uh, and so the, and, and so the primary, um, so there's this kind of three, you know, this is the kind of classic setup. There's a kind of three-way relationship between the collector, the gallerist, and the artist. And so um, the collector and the gallerist are working together, um, you know, directly, and the gallerist and the artist are working together. Um, and, and so it's easy to think that in this sort of day and age of disintermediation that, oh, we'll just get rid of that gallery stage and kind of go go directly. But that gallery role plays a pretty important part in smoothing things out and just kind of managing mm. issues and managing problems. And it turns out, and this was so fascinating to see with Monograph, is that artists by and large don't want to deal with the um, business side of their practice, you know, and so <laughs> right. just like, like on our platform, we had this kind of workflow where you could, you know, describe, you know, is this an art image or, you know, we were, you know, eventually kind of added other kinds of, you know, commercial kinds of things, or we had this whole thing around, you know, newspaper press images, you know, this whole other kind of angle we were thinking about. You know, so it's like, oh, is it an artwork, you know, and then it's like, what's the price, you know, and like people would not would not know how to set a price for their work. It was just a huge, huge hurdle. Uh, yeah. And so we saw that 90% of the time, people just went with the defaults that we set. And if we changed hmm. the defaults, they went with what we changed changed it to. And people just clicked through and, you know, would not, uh, in, you know, just were not in a position to, to engage with that. And especially, you know, in a tool or platform like ours that is, you know, disconnected from the, it, it's, it's an aspirational platform, right? People to right. people are wanting to get their work out there, wanting to make things happen. You know, they don't have a lot of experience or, or whatever. They don't really know what to say, what to select, you know? And so um, that that gallery relationship helps solve those problems for you. You know, they, the mm. gallery can, you can have a conversation with somebody about what the price is and what makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, and that's pretty important. And, and then also in terms of like the sales from the, you know, kind of from this collector standpoint, there's just a lot of trust that the gallery provides, you know, it's like, I've got a long-term relationship with this gallery. Uh, if they're vouching for this artist, I'm going to, you know, respect that. And if there's a problem, I know where to go. I go back to the gallery and the gallery can solve hmm. the problem. You know? so, so like that problem solving role is of the gallery um, on the artist side and the collector side is pretty important. So if I understood you correctly, what you're saying is that um, basically for those people who understand the system and are sort of actively making money and who are fortunate enough to have sort of broken through and get their collectors and their galleries that they're working with, the fact that their work is uh, is easily reproducible is not a particularly salient point. That their protection Correct. is these these personal relationships they have, not the fact that the artwork could theoretically be replicated a million times. Correct. Huh. So, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so, uh, does, <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because it's just like one of these scenarios where, you know, you can dream up the perfect technical solution, but if that's just not how people operate, it doesn't really matter, huh? <laughs> totally. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, and that, you know, that was, that was, Certainly a lesson that that we we learned uh, with 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 monograph, um, and it's a lesson that you know the new kind of next generation crypto art people are still trying to learn. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, and so and 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 it, and it just goes. You know, it's just so interesting. You know, so you've got this kind of high end, this call, you know, this kind of institutional high end 
thing. You know, and so the problem takes care of itself in the sense like you have all these digital works. And so, you know, and, and there's no problem with like looking at work, collecting work and, you know, and so, you know, and I should say that with this, you know, it's like there's a whole like bootleg scene of, you know, as an academic, I, I know all about this too, where it's just sure. like you need material to show your students, right? You got to screen work, right? Uh, you know, so, you know, getting screener copies or gallery copies or illegal, you know, copies from your friends or whatever of like, of like these, you know, uh, uh, real artworks, um, uh, is is happens all the time but there's just no way that that provides is the basis for some sort of economic value i mean you can't sell them who's who's going to buy them or you can't donate them to a museum the museum would be like where is this coming from what who are you what's happening yeah you know? so you know there's no it, it, those images the, and those, those bootlegs are just purely informational um you know kind of uh, placeholders and they, they do they are not carriers of economic value regardless of how perfect the copy of that file is um it's just not how it works yeah yeah that's so interesting that yeah. so like the artifact itself is irrelevant to the point that and i mean this is people's like uh, again like a somewhat naive interpretation but an interpretation nonetheless that like you know, someone coming from outside the art world generally has the opinion that provenance is bullshit, right? That like that that yeah. who owned something shouldn't really affect the value therein. Um, and yet, what you're saying is, even if you take this idea of scarcity away, like because that's another thing that traditional art sort of uh, there's a linchpin there that there's only one of these great paintings, and so of course it has some implicit value based on scarcity. But you're saying. Yes even take that away the scarcity isn't really the artifact itself the scarcity is uh these relationships that have been built up between enough people and then uh once something is purchased what is scarce is this line of provenance that whether you prove it out on the blockchain or prove it out through uh, a museum or a gallery's documentation doesn't really matter that's right absolutely mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, this is what, and so this is what you see. I mean, this is certainly what we experience, you know, with, with Monograph as a platform, is that there's just no traction um, from the institutional players. Um, you know, be it be it galleries, you know, hell, even the gallery postmasters that I worked with forever, you know, and it's just like, yeah. oh, we're doing this thing. Should we do? You know, can we do something with it or like whatever? And they're like, oh, you know, we love you, but nah, we're good. <laughs> You know, all the digital, all the kind of, you know, digitally focused uh, galleries and, you know, tech focused galleries. I mean, it's a small yeah. scene, you know, doing that in New York. I know all those people and they're like, oh, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, now we're good. Yeah. You know, let alone, let alone the museums. And, you know, and then and then it became, you know, because I have, I have work in, in these museums, you know, the, the, the Metropolitan Museum, you know, our first first new media piece in their collection is a piece of ours. And they wanted um, they wanted a uh, they, 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 and it's been the kind of the subject of all this kind of um, restoration issue, you know, kind of conservation issues has been really interesting, you know, kind of working with them, having this work in their collection for a long time. And we had this big uh, it's a database piece with video and all these video discs and all this stuff. And and there was like about a 15 gig archive of work files, source files that, that went into this project. And they were interested in acquiring that, you know, for their collection as part of this conservation thing and study center they're doing and whatever. And it's like, yeah, great. Sure. We're happy to to do that. Um, and the work is edition, you know, it's edition of five. 
And so then I had the bright idea. It's like, well, hey, I'm running this, uh, this you know, kind of artist-run digital provenance platform on the blockchain. Why don't we just run this through the platform, and then you can get your, you know, kind of blockchain stamp on this because you guys have number two out of five, and we'll give you two out of five, and this will be great. Yeah. You know, and and it was just, uh, and 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 no, the answer the answer was no, and it took mm. it was one year of discussions between the 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 um, curators. The IT staff, the legal, you know, legal counsel was the main issue, yeah. uh, you know, the, and, and, and just on and on and on and on and on. And my wife was just like, just give them the damn files, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they, and they, they could, we could not get there. They could not, we could not get there. And in the end, you know, it's like a work already in the collection. Here's this platform. We could customize the platform however you want. Let's just see if we can get it done. Yeah. Could not get it done. And we walk <laughs> over there uh, with a, you know, with a USB. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, so that, that said, uh, we do have a project right now that we're doing a commission with the, with the Whitney Museum um, that is, the, to my knowledge, the first blockchain-based uh, project, uh, you know, kind of supported by a uh, major museum. Um, and, and this is this kind of, and it's kind of convoluted, and we kind of had to do this sort of like turn this little game uh, around it. But, um, you know, this project we're doing with the Whitney right now is called Public Key, Private Key. And you can um, ask to be, we we have a blockchain based tokenized um, fifty tokens to be um, listed as one of the donors of an artwork. So we made the artwork, we gave it to the museum, but they have a, a kind of credit line that's part of the museum record, hmm. and they've agreed to let us put fifty a list of fifty names under that donor credit line, uh, and we're tokenizing that um, on on the blockchain. So it's not about the ownership of the work it's this kind of meta thing of the donor credit of the work huh. and after a long time of talking back and forth and whatever we got them to uh we got them to do that so it's a kind of a baby step uh uh win um and it just shows the um, how far apart the institutions are from uh you know kind of from the the, the kind of blockchain you know yeah. evangelism evangelism is well, do you think, you know, as you get away from like, you know, as as you say, the capital A art world and these these sort of monolithic institutions, it, do you think there's a possibility or do you see any any movement in sort of a more middle market where artists are using this thing to like, it, you know, one of the advantages, one of the theoretical advantages could be that this art is reproducible so that instead of an artist having to figure out more or less how many hours they're putting into a monster project and figuring out how they relate that to some kind of value for their artwork they could actually sell things in volume at a lower cost um mm -hmm. but you know be tokenized in a way that like there's real authentication for the fact that you bought this thing from the artist and so it's sort of legitimate whether it's a limited run or you know a large limited run i guess you would say but a finite yeah. number is this something that's happening or is there any like any other markets that are appearing? It is. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, what's been interesting to see with the, you know, the kind of, you know, current generation, current wave of, um, you know, of, you know, the, the crypto art, non-fungible token, you know, uh, tokenized artwork um, scene, you know, and this, you know, is, you know, kind of famously uh, uh, kind of pioneered by crypto kitties, you know, that, that kind of had the, good fortune of launching that project in the, you know, mass frenzy of late 2017 sure. price, uh, price hype, you know, and, and, and everything in blockchain is driven by, by 
price, you know. So it's like when when the price is high, everything blockchain is 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 happening. When the price is down, nothing in blockchain is interesting. Right. And so you know, CryptoPunks came out beforehand, didn't get a lot as much traction, but CryptoKitties hit right when that curve price curve was going up. It's a great project. I'm not saying that it was that, you know that they're you know they deserve it or whatever. It's a you know great project. And sure. so that 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 kind of tokenized uh, ownership. Uh, really took off with 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 them, and um, and then and, you know in the aftermath, a number of other platforms um, you know, have emerged, uh, Super Rare and Known Origin and Data NYC and other people, and um, and so there you know um, and then there's a lot of activity around this platform. So there just there, there was a you know um, uh, you know crypto and digital art fair just ended this weekend, and there's another one another one day thing happening. Later this month in New York, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of interest um, in it, and so and now there's a number of uh, marketplaces where you know OpenSeas.io, um, uh, you know, where, where where these things are are, are being sold, um, and so there is a community that has come to it, and and it is a new community. Uh, it is a community that was not attached to the you know traditional art world, you know. So I think that that's a great success that there's been. Um, new interest and new people and new energy uh, brought to this uh, question of art collecting and art making and art art ownership. So I think all that stuff is really good. Um, there, you know, it turns out that they're pretty isolated. You know, I think that, you know, you know, somebody that, you know, has, you know, been doing stuff for a long time and, you know, as a professor, I, you know, I'm supposed to know my history and I know my history and sure. know all these things. And, and, and they're, um, you know, they're disconnected from those things. And so, um, you know, they don't know about the, so much about the 30, 40 year history of, you know, kind of generative work or interactive work or, you know, electronic and digital based mm. work so much, you know. And yeah. so, you know, for them, digital art is a term that's synonymous with, you know, the last couple of years of efforts around tokenizing works on Ethereum. Huh. And so, um, and so there is a, you know, so there is a little, there is a market um, in a scene that that is that is interesting, but there's not a lot of buyers there. There's not a lot of money in it, and they're not connected to the traditional um, art buyers. You know, mm. they're kind of there's a kind of set of crypto buyers, uh, you know, crypto whales and things like that. You know, sure. that are that, that are involved with that. But but even with that said, it's interesting to see that a lot of the same rules of the traditional art world apply where there is uh, an elite, you know, there's two or three or four artists that galvanize most of the attention and most of the, 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 the money. And so in this case, it's, you know, the CryptoPunks people, Larva Labs, you know, their, their, their work can sell as CryptoPunks can sell. Um, and their new project uh, sells, you know, Kevin Abash, he's known as an artist who's you know, involved and he can make some stuff happen. Um, you know, coin artist, you know, although she's kind of switched into gaming, you know, so, but it's, but it's a small number. And so there's a lot and there's a large pool of people that are, you know, that don't have as much traction or, 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 or interest. So it's that same yeah. kind of, you know, call it an 80, 20 power law uh, kind of thing <laughs> um, that's, that's applicable to the, you know, kind of to the traditional world. So same rules, not many buyers, the, you know, 80, 20, uh, you know, kind of value capture uh, and, um, and, and it's uh, a handful of, um, you know, wealthy people that are buying on, based on personal relationships and one-on-one -on -one sales 
yeah. techniques, you know, just like galleries. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah. funny yeah. <laughs> to see that. <laughs> Out with the old boss, same as the new boss, right? Totally, it's, man. Totally. It's so interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder, like, I have one of these overriding uh, uh, theories with technology in general. I, I consider myself a self-hating technologist. I, uh, uh-huh. yeah. You know, like I, I, it's great when it solves real problems, but especially being out here in Silicon Valley. I mean, I, I mentioned to you earlier that I'm from the East Coast, but living in Silicon Valley now. So I have very like kind of conflicting uh, ethos, ethos, I, whatever the plural of ethos is. But, uh, but, but I have this theory that like, generally speaking, you know, when technology is, comes along that's an order of magnitude different from what you're used to that it doesn't matter how valuable that technology is or how good it is at solving a given problem if it's just not comfortable to, for people to use and they just don't understand how it's being used um it doesn't matter how good it is that people just have a hard time picking it up and you know like something i would consider in that family is is augmented reality this is a Mm-hmm. A potentially unpopular dis, uh, uh, point in Silicon Valley, but I just don't see it catching on because it's so uncomfortable for people to use it's such a disruption from how they live their daily life. And I wonder yeah. sometimes with with you know because you know I'm in this crypto world a little bit, and um, just hearing people talk about it, you know, like if you like step back and remember where you were ten years ago before you ever heard about it and then listen to some of these conversations, you're like, these are the Jetsons talking about like jet propulsion. Like it's I have yeah. no idea what they're talking about. Crypto tokenization, blockchain, ether, you know, it's just like yeah. Yeah. such an abstract concept for people to wrap their head around that I wonder if if uh yeah. you know if if there is a solution here that's just unattainable because people are so uncomfortable um, you know, committing committing to these ideas i don't know yeah well you know and as i said earlier you know just when in talking about that challenge of teaching coding to artists that the um the stuff that you're dealing with is you know in, in your code and that process of, of, of making code work is so um unforgiving and so far removed from what originally as an artist you know draw drew you into you know making art yeah yeah yeah. Um, right and so the same thing is absolutely the case with uh with with blockchain you know so it's just like you know we got this you know so we can kind of tokenize these things and then of course and then it's like oh well you know how do we have uh resale royalties and how do we make resale royalties happen in a kind of uh you know off-platform way so it's you know open you know to you know to kind of different platforms and we have all these kind of layers of smart contracts of this or like that well this kind of thing and it's all just it's 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 you know it's it's metadata on top of metadata on top of metadata right and 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 each one of those things is taking you away from the artwork the actual bits the bits of the artwork you know the bits that make up the file that you're supposedly interested in and 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 you know this is true with you know with collectors you know even you know the traditional collectors you know it's like you know it's like i've got traditional collectors and they come to the studio you know and it's not about speculation for them it's not about resale uh and it's about it's about dialogue and conversation with the artist you know it's like what are you doing what are you interested in tell me about what you're working on what are your ideas you know, and and so and and so the 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 work and the ownership of the work is really just kind of a pass or a key to that relationship, uh, and, you know, to give them access to that to that relationship. Mm. You know, it's a kind of coin of the realm, 
And so all of these kind of things that are, you know, that are metadata regimes, right? And so metadata regimes are just not that exciting and not the nervous <laughs> right. site, the, the source of much, you know, uh, much Orwellian hardship in our lives. You know? So, <laughs> you know, to kind of be all excited about, you know, innovations and in record keeping and ownership when it comes to artwork is kind of missing the point yeah. uh, of what people are interested in with artwork. Now, you'll get artists that are all excited about it because, the pitch that they hear is this is going to earn you money, right? right. This is going to solve the financial side of your, of, of your profession, you right. know, through right. resales and, and, and whatever. So, and the artists are like, cool, that sounds great. Sure. And oh, you can show my work and you're interested in, you know, kind of showing my stuff and you like what I'm doing and you're excited about this. Or like that all sounds great, you know? Um, but and I'm not saying that artists don't understand the tech or they're, you know, whatever, uninterested or whatever, you know, they certainly can kind of go through a learning process to it. But, you know, the the, the main direction uh, that all these conversations is going is away from art yeah. know, towards something else. Um, and that is, you know, probably why the art world has not raced to embrace it. Hmm. I, I, uh, I know we're running short on time, so I don't want to get too far in another direction, but I am curious, uh, from a high level, you know, if, if this model isn't panning out so well, or it doesn't seem like it's really solving problems, do you see any models that are happening? Um, technology assisted models that are, are exciting that you're interested in? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that, that we're really in an age of, um, uh, of the patron rather than the, the collector. Hmm. Uh, and I think that people are interested, you know, as I was saying with these, you know, kind of talking about with the, you know, uh, the, the relationship with the collector coming by the studio or whatever, people want to be involved in, uh, artists work and want to be involved in artists processes and see the results of those things um and so you know the the the, the rise you know during the same time frame the rise the rise of blockchain technology is the rise of um uh, crowdfunding uh platforms you know and so kickstarter just had its 10-year anniversary and of course patreon is you know kind of taking over the world and it's in its own way yeah. um and 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 instagram you know and and, and the kind of direct connections and, and kind of sales uh, that are that are kind of happening through through Instagram, um, and you know, so that that kind of integration of, of of direct connection via social media and payment apps, uh, which is I, I see as just another form of of, of patronage, um, and then you know, Patreon and Kickstarter crowdfunding. That to me seems much more about um, what the way people are, are are working now. And so that question of ownership and authenticity and provenance um, is is a niche concern. Uh, and, and a concern most at the at the at the, at the top level, and mm. and people can even do you know, um, you know limited you know it's like a Kickstarter award, and it's like oh, only ten people get this file, you know, and so right. and it's at the hundred dollar level, uh, and you know they on their website they show like oh two of ten left or whatever you know, and it's like at the end of the day. Does it matter that the blockchain token, you know, proves that it's 10 or is it just the website there that says one of 10 and, they, and then you get the file and the artist knows and you know and everybody knows that wants to know that you're one of those 10? Um, that's enough for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, um, so so but to get back to your thing about like kind of things that I, that I am interested in, I mean, you know, I'm. I'm still like blockchain technology a lot. And sure. And, and I love all the experiments that are that are going on. And, you know, I love. Uh, you know, I, I 
I'm a you know huge open web fan and love all the great JavaScript libraries for animating and you know interacting and you yeah. know making stuff and you know I love what people are doing with you know what artists are doing with VR and you know so all that stuff is really uh, is, is really great so um, you know I'm a huge you know I'm a, I'm a true believer in Bitcoin itself you know and I think that Bitcoin you know has has succeeded you know already in terms of providing a way for people just to have an open and you know, decentralized way to transfer value back and forth for whatever reason and however they want to do that. And it's done that for 10 years. So that's already a success. You know, yeah. so I think that, you know, things are, things are fine. There's no yeah. problem. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, man. And it's funny. There's, there's something very academic about that too, that like you can critique something, but that doesn't mean that it's worthless or that, you know, that it didn't yeah, have totally. its place in history or whatever. No such thing yeah, as a totally. failed experiment. It's just, no, it's just like do your work, man. It's yeah. good. Show me what you got. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's also a, it's a total New York thing too. Where it's just like show me what you got. I want to see it. Let me see. Oh, that's cool. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny too. I mean, because at the end of the day, right? Like the experience for an artist is you can have you can have in your, your head in the clouds with all these ideas, but at the end of the day, you gotta pound the pavement and sell your work, right? Like you just gotta figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah, lots of tools yeah, to get that totally. job done. Well, yeah, exactly. Look, Kevin, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I am super excited to have gotten to talk to you. It's not every day I get to just swap ideas with an NYU prof. So uh, thank you so much for <laughs> anytime, being on the man, call with just us. Come on by. Uh, we got a, yeah, we, we, we uh, well, it'll just sort of give a little plug. We also run a, my wife and I run a, uh, we have an artist run um, exhibition space out in Brooklyn uh, called Auxiliary Projects that's uh, attached to our studio. And so we do, we do real life shows of, you know, video and painting and all kinds of stuff. So uh, come on down and we'll uh, keep talking. Yeah. How do people, uh, how do people find out about that? Is is there a social, is there a website? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you have to look up how to spell auxiliary because no one ever spells it right. (laughs) (laughs) Google how to spell. Exactly. Look, Google how to spell auxiliary. Auxiliaryprojects.com is the uh, name of the website. And then our website for our artwork is uh, McCoySpace.com. And that's also my, uh, all my social handles. Um, And uh, Monograph monograph.com so there's more than enough to uh, occupy your surfing awesome well thank you so much kevin but before i let you go listeners of the show know for every interview there's always a rapid fire question section at the end real okay. quick real quick hits do you have a minute to do that yes i do all right completely off topic what was your best vacation location ever wow um <laughs> uh D- Dordogne, France. That is a great answer. I'll have to look that up on a map later. <laughs> Jello or pudding? Uh, pudding. Well, what flavor? Got to know that. Vanilla. Vanilla. Very nice. Yeah, okay. No, right. <laughs> vanilla kind of guy. Hey, that's, they say that's why they make chocolate and vanilla, right? And yep. last but not least, what is your best piece of advice to your students? Don't stop. Oh, man. Keep I love working. that one. such a good piece of advice for artists well kevin thank you so much man i know uh you took time out of your busy schedule i know it's finals week it's crazy i really 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 appreciate that um and i hope all of our listeners will continue to check out what you're doing stay tuned to the whole blockchain conversation uh and everything above yeah it sounds that's all good man and thanks so much for having me cheers bye-bye As always, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. 
And uh, if you like what we're doing here at State of the Yard, or if you like this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Five-star reviews are always great. That's the most helpful thing you can do to help us, to help us grow, and to find other awesome listeners that like the same things you do. So thank you so much again, and I hope you tune in next week for another episode of State of the Art.